Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Brian Allen Carr, whose novel Opioid Indiana is out now from Soho Press. Brian is the author of several story collections and novellas and has been published in McSweeney's, Hobart, and The Rumpus. He was the inaugural winner of the Texas Observer Short Story Prize, as judged by Larry McMurtry, and the recipient of a Wonderland Book Award. He splits his time between Texas and Indiana, where he writes about engineers and inventors at Rose Hulman Institute of Technology. Opioid charts one week in the life of Riggle, a 17-year-old orphan living with his drug-addicted uncle, Joe, and Joe's girlfriend, Peggy, who Riggle is a little bit in love with. When Riggle gets suspended for vaping and Joe disappears with the month's rent, Riggle spends his days searching for his uncle and wandering his small town, trying to make sense of his own life and the world around him. Riggle's dynamic voice, curious, intelligent, cynical, tender, drives the narrative. He's a kid who's not really allowed to be a kid and yet can't help it. He's at once overburdened with emotional responsibility. His mother, we learn in an offhanded piece of narration, committed suicide in their home, and urgently focused on getting into a weekday Black Panther matinee with his best friend. He sees the addiction crisis and pervasive lack around him matter-of-factly and tries to find his footing amidst it. In this conversation, Brian and I talk about how he accessed Riggle's inner life and voice and how borders show up again and again in his work. We also talk about Brian's love for blue-collar pulp noir and Kurt Vonnegut and why he'll often write from prompts and at breakneck paces. Wanting to write a timely book, he finished Opioid in just nine weeks. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation, in which we discuss how to know when a voice is working, by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. So a lot of the voice is kind of an amalgamation of like almost every single student I ever talked to that year. I mean, I think there does exist a type of kid where they are so aware that the world around them is messed up and that the adults around them can't explain the world around them. That they're like, I'm going to figure this out on my own. I wanted to get started by just asking you about kind of your entry into the voice of the book, because it is so distinctive and it rests kind of so heavily on Riggle's first person perspective that I imagine that it, it's something that you kind of couldn't really unlock the book until you felt like you had unlocked that voice. Is that sort of how it felt for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that the entry premise was vaping was i don't know why that ended up being like the thing that i was sort of considering more than anything else probably because i'm older than you know the vaping generation when i was in high school and younger i mean i tried all kinds of different things right drugs and cigarettes and all this kind of stuff and i was really intrigued by the idea of what it must be like to try vaping I know what it was like to try marijuana and I know what it was like to try alcohol and cigarettes, you know what I mean? Or to do acid or, I mean, I grew up on the Texas coast and we used to go to like um, these cow fields and pick mushrooms, you know, like when I was in high school and like, so I tried all kinds of different stuff, but I never vaped. Right. And I'm not going to now, nor would it be the same kind of idea. Right. Like if I vaped now, it wouldn't be the same thing. And so I was kind of just meditating on this idea of a, what it must be like to think about vaping if you weren't maybe the type of person who was predisposed to vaping but being like 17. I don't know why like I was just kicking it I was just thinking about that and then kind of wriggle came to me but so it was interesting because like the year that I wrote this book I taught high school for a year here in Indiana 
I taught high school before, but I taught special needs students while I was working on my MFA, and it was a very different sort of scenario. I ran what was called a life skills unit, and I had like 20 students and like 12 paraprofessionals, and it was a different kind of premise. And then I got my MFA and I taught college for quite some time, but then when I moved to Indiana, I changed professions. And so then I taught high school. Like, so a lot of the voices, kind of an amalgamation of like almost every single student I ever talked to that year, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And then the story kind of unlocked itself for me. Once I found the, the noise of the voice, I wrote three pages and I emailed my agent and my publisher and everything. And I was like, I got a book that's bouncing out of me. I'm going to send it to you in six weeks. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I mean, there was a few tricks that I did um, in order to write the book that quickly. Once I hit that voice, I was like, this thing is this thing's done quick, man, done quick. So I think I wrote it, edited it, sent it, sold it in like nine weeks. Is that normal for you? <laughs> so here's the deal about me. <laughs> I try to kind of have a foot firmly planted in a couple different camps. I really like these kind of more blue collar writers, pulp noir writers. I was a big fan of Kurt Vonnegut. Uh-huh. Uh, Jim Thompson, Daniel Woodrell, right? All these kind of characters who kind of write a little more quickly. I did some books with a press called Lazy Fascist. Cameron Pierce was the guy who ran it. He's not really doing it right now. Hopefully he'll come back to publishing at some point in time because the kid's just a total genius. But um, he would have me write books on prompts for him. And like it was something I started trying because Jim Thompson used to write books on prompts. And so, yeah, I mean, if I'm given a premise or if I have an idea, I can generally do a book in like, yeah, probably a month and a half would be kind of how I do it. Because I really draw heavily like on voice and diction and stuff like that from like the more literary camp, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then, but like plot and things of that nature, I really try to take from tropes a little bit more, I think, to a certain extent. I mean, not completely and totally following the tropes, but... I like to work with these sort of like types of stories, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I can go pretty quickly once I have a voice and the kind of premise that I'm going to go with on the book. I don't know if you're inclined to sort of slow yourself down and, and be overly critical in a way that slows down your process, but it sounds like a nice insurance against that. Um, so it's weird. Like I stop and start a bunch at the beginning until I find the voice. Mm. But then once I find the voice generally, and it's of whatever book or just the idea of the book, then I can generally go pretty quickly. And then, yes, I mean, you're right. I don't have to be hypercritical of certain elements. I have to be a little more hypercritical of elements that have to do with voice and tone, but not as much, I don't guess, with like this idea of of narrative. Mm -hmm. Right. And speaking about working with tropes, kind of what in your mind was this book? Sort of what form was it playing with? It's a Save the Orphanage story. Mm -hmm. It's weird, man, because like a lot of people keep comparing this book to Catcher in the Rye a little bit. Mm. And like, I don't really care for that book. And I I didn't really think about it. It, it, It's a very similar package to that as well. The only difference, right? So in that one, that's like a voyage, right? Right. Like Odyssey or you know, um, and then repackaged like Ulysses, James Joyce or whatever. But like, so this is basically like a save the orphanage, which means, right, something bad happens and then you have to try to get money or solve a problem, uh, right, to kind of save the scenario. Right. And him getting suspended creates a really nice structure, like kind of container for that to happen in because you know the action's going to come in those days. 
Yeah, it's an entry point. And then, too, I mean, I shaped the whole novel around the course of the week. So, right, like I had each little issue going on each day. Right. Which kind of makes it a little bit more serial-like. I mean, akin maybe to like uh, a sitcom mm-hmm. uh, structure, but I didn't like each day. I didn't really break down quite that way, unless you want to think about like the myths that are in each day as being a certain kind of like um, a B story or something like that. Right, right. Circling back a little bit to voice, I would love to hear you talk about, you know, when you were teaching those kids, kind of what was standing out to you about the way that they spoke, the way they kind of, the things they thought about, like the way they carried themselves. Yeah. So it's interesting. I was in an area that is um, just outside of Indianapolis, right? And Indianapolis is the most uh, major urban area in Indiana. But I was a stone's throw out, you know, I mean, maybe eh, 25 minutes or whatever. So a lot of the people who lived in that area worked in Indianapolis, right? Mm -hmm. But so then you have this like kind of really intriguing premise of it being a very rural area, right? Like the town was like, you know, a farming community right next to a much more urban area in Indianapolis and like that kind of passing of information from one place to the next. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in borders, probably because I lived on the Texas-Mexico border for so long and how they're like not necessarily concrete, right? So in this area that I was in, they were like part hick, part urban, right? So there was just this weird overlap of like country-ass-isms Right, mixed in with like these kind of more like hip hop esque vernaculars, right? Mm-hmm. So they would call each other like corn dicks, right? Like that was <laughs> like their insult to each other, like fucking corn dick. Well, like on the one hand, right, like it almost kind of has like a cool sound, yeah. I guess. But on the other hand, it's clearly like a nod to the fact that they live in a you know, corn farming community. Right. And and then just kind of the stuff that they got excited about or interested in. Like, I was always so, like, intrigued to see which of the songs or bands from my era mm. passed the baton over to theirs. And so, like, all their favorite 80s songs was uh, uh, Toto's uh, God Bless the Rain Sound in Africa. Oh I don't know. <laughs> Dude, and I was like, why the hell would y'all <laughs> listen to that song? That song was kind of trash back in the day, you know? And they kind of treat it with the reverence. I don't know, all that kind of stuff. Just generational. Anything generational or anything based on that kind of urban slash rural tie-in really kind of intrigued me. Yeah, yeah. And what I kept thinking about, too, with Riggle, I mean, first of all, he's got such a, like a lot of gears are turning, you know, like he's thinking about a lot of different things and he's got a lot of kind of touch points and reference points. Yeah. But like even teenagers have this like, you know, like I lived in New York for a long time. I'm in Pittsburgh now, but I I was just back Mm -hmm. there last week. And so I was like on trains a lot, you know, and just like around a lot of people and kind of not really like reading, but, but sort of also eavesdropping. And, and I was just like struck Mm -hmm. again by how teenagers and 20 somethings, and this is the kind of 20 something I was in New York for sure. But like, you know, you talk about everything, like it's the most urgent, important thing that's ever happened to anyone. And like, so that, that idea of him just kind of, you know, like everything is, I mean, on the stakes are very high in a, in a real sense but there's also this kind of like okay our mission is getting into black panther you know and everything is like very (laughs) single focus like we have to accomplish this thing 
Yeah, each day kind of had one of those things kind of built into it, right, where there was something they had to do that day. And some of the stakes were high and some of them weren't. Yeah, exactly. And definitely just that kind of like idea of importance. You know, I, I have a 10-year-old daughter, right, and we were just out walking a trail or whatever. And um, <laughs> I, I kind of feel bad saying this, right, but like my wife and daughter were talking to each other. And I guess my, my daughter doesn't brush her teeth this morning. She's like, dude, your breath kind of stinks, right? Like, not like <laughs> terrible, right? But like, dude, my kid lost it. Like, it's like my wife just said the worst thing in the world to her, you know? Uh, it was just some petty thing, you know, like, right. I mean, and it wasn't like my wife said it some evil way. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, that just youth kind of has that. And especially like that high school feeling that you get with some of these other things. It's a, it's a trip, man. You're basically one giant nerve at that age, man. <laughs> totally, totally. And yet, you know, he does have this sort of, I don't know, I, I would be really curious to kind of hear how you feel about him and your take on him. Cause he is in, in many senses, like, the only adult in his life. And I think a lot of kids who've grown up in in situations certainly like this, but even just kind of like slightly more mildly dysfunctional family situations, you know, do end up having to kind of try to straddle both of those worlds and sort of like understand themselves in there. How well do you feel like he's doing that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely the attempt and not necessarily the attempt of the book, but I think it's the attempt of that type of, of kid I mean, I think there does exist a type of kid where they are so aware that the world around them is like messed up and that the adults around them can't explain the world around them, that they're like, I'm going to figure this out on my own. Mm -hmm. That same type of kid will generally be suspicious then of authority, right? Because if that kid is like, the authorities can't explain this to me, I'm going to figure it out on my own and I'm going to do so by ignoring the authorities, right? It's a type of student that exists in every high school. It's a student who's smart, but makes S, right? right like right. that is the type of, of like, right. He, like he's reading about. some heavy duty philosophy. Yeah. He finds like basically like a remaindered sort of entry to philosophy book. And it's all short stuff. And he's kind of like reading that. And then he's looking up at YouTube because clearly he wants some type of answers, but at the same time, he doesn't want to get them from, you know, the adults around him until I think he meets Chef. Yeah. And then something changes at least a little bit in him where like he has found somebody he will at least listen to. Right. It's such an interesting sort of ecosystem for him to wander into because it starts out so kind of randomly. He's just like, oh, I'm really good at making omelets. And like that reminds me of his mom and that's this whole thing. But but then like kitchens, there is this, it's kind of this like punk military, you know, like it is very regimented and very yeah. structured and he has to like address her respectfully, but it's also this kind of like misfit place. Yeah. And this will kind of come into like maybe some of the other ways I was able to really write this book fast. Most of these things that take place in this book are too great things that like I went through as a kid, right? Uh-huh. So like I worked in restaurants. The chef I based off a chef that I had a culinary school named Chef Dina. My relationship wasn't quite as impactful, uh, but that the behavior of of the person. But so like a lot of the things that I inserted into Riggle, I inserted for my own life in order to just kind of get him to analyze or to, so you could kind of see, you know, maybe the take that he would have on it if put in that scenario. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the take that I had in all of these scenarios because I have a much different background than Riggle, right? So like everything was very different, but I was trying to write 
a book in a really quick amount of time that was like really timely. And so I basically pilfered a lot of the experiences that I had as a human being and I just analyzed them through the voice of a wriggle, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So like he's a dishwasher in this and he was like all happy to be a dishwasher. I was a dishwasher as a kid. I fucking hated it. You know, like <laughs> so that kind of stuff, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking too, as you're saying that, you know, what you're saying about borders, but he, he's also on this kind of like evolutionary border. Mm -hmm. He's about to turn 18 and he's about to kind of very much be on his own. And mm -hmm. did you kind of know that you wanted him to be that age or did, did he sort of reveal himself to be that age? Yeah. And like, there's the other border where he has like one foot in the digital world and one foot in the real world. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's more exacerbated because he can't be on the internet as much. I always kind of do that. The school that I got my MFA at, it's the school that Gloria Anzaldua went to as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. And she wrote about it in this essay called how to tame a wild tongue. But her, her most famous book is called borderlands. And I think that like, Everybody who went to that school, we were proud that she went to the same school as us, right? Mm -hmm. And we all dug her work because it resonated deeply with us. And so I think every, almost everybody that I came out of school with, we all kind of look at borders in some way. And almost all of our work, it's really kind of crazy, right? But yeah, I mean, I kind of gravitate towards these sort of stories that do kind of take place with like one foot in reality, one foot out, one mm -hmm. foot in reality, one foot out. And then also, right, like, so he's an adult, he's a kid, he's an adult, he's a kid, he's, he's living through myth, he's living in real life. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of just what I gravitate to as a story writer. Yeah. Do you think he feels like he belongs anywhere? I think that he is beginning to feel like he belongs. I think probably anybody who moves initially you don't really feel like you belong where you are mm -hmm. unless you are moving for like some best case scenario mm -hmm. right like if you're taking the exact job that you want to take and it's in the exact town that you want to be in and you move across the country and go to the exact house that you want you'll be like cool i belong here <laughs> right. right but maybe not even because it could be that you're social structure in that place doesn't allow you to feel quite like yourself or whatever. So he's just a kid who's moved around a bunch and he hasn't even lived in this place for very long. It's his second winter. And again, I stole that from myself because mm -hmm. I moved here from Texas. Again, it's like a, I biographically pilfered a lot of the stuff. It's just kind of a different premise in terms of how you want to look at it. Right. Me and Franklin, I feel like I very much belong here in this area. Opioid Indiana is not completely based on Franklin. But it's like where I moved to, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. But I have pretty much felt like I belong here because I've been coming here off and on for like 12 years. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like, I think he has the, the jitters of having moved someplace new mm -hmm. more than anything. And then, of course, right. I mean, his parents are dead. So that would, have, of course, exacerbate. That'd be probably the underlying issue with all of it. Right. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash W-M-F-A podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. Let's talk a little bit about the timeliness factor and the sort of socioeconomic backdrop of the book, because that was a big part of the reason that I, you know, the title caught my eye in the first place is I'm, I'm from West Virginia and I do a lot of writing about West Virginia. And I saw this in an interview with you. Somebody else said, I think the interviewer was from Ohio and she was like, you could have swapped Indiana with Ohio. And I think you could have swapped yeah. it with a lot, you know, a lot of places. And can you talk a little bit about that approach of like, especially when you set out to want to write a timely book, but kind of making it still feel like something organic, but it, but you have, it has these qualities that you want it to have, or it says these things, articulates these things you want it to show. Yeah, I mean, more than anything else, like, so for whatever reason, my writing seems to be a kind of coping for me. Whatever I'm experiencing at the time, if I'm writing something at the time as well, then I can kind of think about multiple things. Mm -hmm. So my mind just runs all the time. And then I think I kind of always found that like, if I write, then maybe I, I'm less likely to just get in my own head in a negative way, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, like when I decided I wanted to write a time of the book, it, it was like, dude, that would be great. Cause like, I could just like translate today right like into something else yeah it made any sense it makes any sense and like the thing was is that i was teaching at, you know high school and there had been uh right the parkland shooting was that year mm -hmm. and there were all kinds of shootings right and like my kids every day would look up shootings and all this and we had to like practice for shootings right. and all this kind of stuff right like lock the door and practice for shootings. and i remember just feeling like it was so twilight zone ass mm -hmm. that like the only way i could get through it was to kind of like give myself some other things to think about mm. i was like dude if i write a book right now i don't have to think about how weird it is <laughs> that we're locking the door every two weeks to practice if we get murdered mm -hmm. then you have to transition from that to like hey man let's talk about a rose for emily you know right, like right. Or whatever <laughs> Or let's talk about comma usage. Um, uh, so in that regard, that's how I wanted the book to be timely. And then, I mean, I don't know if I'm just getting older or whatever, but the world just perplexes me, you know. I think it perplexes a lot of people. I think mm -hmm. most people are confused. And because they're confused, they're angry or they search out something or whatever. But, like, it was a confusing time and I wanted to, like, just have something going on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Something that was really striking to me and that I think – mirrored some of my experience growing up in a, in a kind of similar place, similar in some ways, different in some ways. But like, there's that lot, you know, it's when he's thinking about how he doesn't really know like what to do for a job. And, you know, he's talking about like these aptitude tests that they take and like the guidance counselors. And, and there's this line, like you like art, paint houses. And just yeah. like this idea that you, you couldn't be an artist like that that's not the answer. Like you like art. So be an artist. <laughs> it's like yeah. you like art. So yeah. translate that into something that's less fulfilling, but like more socially kind of in line with like what's around you. And, and I don't know, I was just thinking a lot reading this of how just like at this age. And I mean, I guess at any age, really, like, you know what you see and you don't know what you don't see. No, for sure. I think that too, especially working class dudes, it's hard for them to be like, I want to be an artist, right? right? Like, right. it's a different sort of thing, totally. right? For whatever reason. I mean, it, it's kind of a treat. Like, so right, I grew up playing music, right? And that was, a, you know, for, for working class dudes, that was a pretty socially acceptable endeavor. 
But if I was like, I'm going to be a painter, it would have been okay if that like meant transitioning into a tattoo artist at some point in time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The only thing that makes you think that is your peers, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, or your parents that they just are like worried about you. Mm-hmm. But like in his instance, he doesn't have the like explanation and the guidance for like, maybe why do that thing? Right. So, right. and then, yeah, I mean, I think that happens to a lot of people you know, whoever it, right, it is where you kind of, if you want to do something that for whatever reason, the people in your immediate sphere think is a bad idea, they try to transition you away from that idea, but then into like something similar, right. um, which is always preposterous. Mitch Hedberg talked about that one time when he was like, he has a stand-up bit where he talks about being a stand-up comic. And that, like, when you're a stand-up comic, everybody wants you to do other stuff, right? They want Mm. you to act in sitcoms or maybe write sitcoms. Anyway, but he was like, that's basically like telling a cook, right, that they should be a farmer, right? (laughs) Like, man, you're a really good cook. (laughs) You should grow carrots. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right, right. And I think that's true. The other thing that people will do if you're, like, attempting any kind of artistic endeavor is they'll jump to some, you know, insane best case scenario for Mm. you and foist that upon you as though that's your anticipation or goal, right? So like somebody will find out I'm a writer and they'll be like, dude, I bet you'll be the next JK Rowling. It's like, there are so many steps between. (laughs) Typically, if somebody comes up to you and they're like, I want to be a real estate agent, you're not going to be like, dude, I bet you'll be the next Donald Trump, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't, I don't know. It's weird how that kind of works. If you pick one of those endeavors that people think are a little bit less socially acceptable for whatever reasons, they'll like assume your goals with it are different. Right, right. How did you come to writing? <laughs> so my dad was a preacher and um, my grandfather was a preacher and my grandfather, uh, you know, when I was a kid had already retired from being a preacher and he was not always only a preacher he had also worked in advertising Mm, that's an interesting combination yeah and sales and stuff and so he had this really unique perspective about language and he liked uh, my grandfather uh, we called him papa Um, (laughs) he liked narrative a lot my name and this was for no reason like planned out but my name is brian allen carr and i guess to him it sounded like edgar allen poe right so When I was six, he gave me an Edgar Allan Poe book, right? And he would tell me ghost stories and and he would always write. And he also bound books. So like he would buy old, you know, leather first edition things and he'd rebind them or whatever. I, I don't know. He was just huh. a book dude. Yeah. And then my nanny, my mom's mom. So my papa was like my dad's dad and mm-hmm. my nanny was my mom's mom. She was a big reader and she was also really big into movies and she had emphysema. And so she would like record movies because that's, you know, she couldn't do much, right? Like she'd hang out in her uh, beach house and she'd like record movies off of TV, you know, the yeah. ones that were like super primo, right? Like she would like, you read her TV guide and if like something, you know, some sort of like Oscar winning, like, how green was my valley or something is coming on encore stars and she would videotape it. And then, so she had this big old drawer full of like these, you know, classic movies that she had videotaped off TV. 
and I would watch the hell out of those, you know? And so I don't know, man, like for me, like stories were just always <laughs> something. I, it almost seemed like you were supposed to do it in my family. It was kind of weird. Though my brother and sister did not gravitate that way. So maybe it was through the lens that I looked at it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What's your sort of writing life like now? Like, do you prefer to write, be writing every day, especially like when you're in no. contact? No, I think every day uh-huh. about books, right? Like every day uh, I kick around concepts or books in my head um, and characters even. I'll kind of start to kind of create a character or a setting or something or a mood. And when I think I have something in my head that merits exploration, I'll... Uh, write a few pages and then I might wait a day or maybe not even a day but then I'll reread it with some time elapsed and I'll kind of think on that meditate on that see if it's anything I actually want to explore once I have an idea that I want to explore I'd pretty much go hard at it until it's done Mm -hmm. if I'm like really in a binge I'll do like eight to twelve hour days like if I'm not working that day, right? if right. I'm not working that day, I'll just kind of chain myself to a computer, just sit down, stay seated, work, 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 read back through that the next day to start and work, 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 you know, and then there's days in between and on the days in between, I'll just like, you know, play the scenarios, play the character voices in my head the whole time. But then, so I, I kind of bend that way, I guess, like it takes me a long time to like, figure out the project and in my head that's the way I draft in some ways but I guess in some ways I'm always writing and that I draft in my head before I really commit much to the page right there's another great writing podcast called between the covers and it's affiliated now with tin house so they're airing these like tin house workshop panels and I was just listening to this revision panel and I think somebody was was saying that's how Amy Hempel works too. The panel was about revision but they were making this point that their process is more akin to hers which is like they've been revising the sentence in their head for days so like by the time they are sitting down it's usually pretty like not that there's no revision but like the thinking is a large part of the writing and I think that's such an important distinction because it can be so hard to allow those things to be part of the work. I don't know at least for me I can feel like you're just sitting staring at the ceiling and I can feel like really shitty about myself. Yeah. This is to me where I was so fortunate to like a few writers who were like, I can just bang out books. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like to me, Jim Thompson and and Kurt Vonnegut were like two of my favorites as a kid and they just pumped out work, you know, Mm -hmm. and some of it's good and some of it's not, (laughs) you know, and in my head I was like, that's the better way to go. (laughs) <laughs> you know like totally. just like throw stuff against the wall grind 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 look back at it but again that's because that's what i thought the process was supposed to be i think maybe if i liked it you know like for, for some reason my favorite writer was like david foster wallace or or you know you know anybody who just kind of put out like two or three books i yeah. think i might think very differently about it yeah yeah so do you work on just one project at a time so the only time I didn't was when I wrote Sip, which was my novel before this novel, mm-hmm. because I started that, put it aside, did something else in its entirety, went back to it, put it aside, did something else in its entirety. A couple times over the span of like three and a half years, 
it was intentional. I wanted it to kind of be like that because I wanted it to have a real staccato feel, mm. like a strobe light almost. You know, some people dug the strobe lightedness of it and some people didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Is this the one that I, w- I was seeing uh, in my research that you held this like one star review contest? No. That was a short story collection, my very first short story collection. It was called Short Bus, and it came out on Texas Review Press. And yes, somebody gave it a one-star review or something, and I thought it was, I just thought it was really, I don't know, I can't remember. I I remember thinking it was cool. It was my first (laughs) one-star review, right? Yeah. Like, somebody was like, I hate this guy so much that I'm logging on to Amazon, and I'm a trash and I was like, I want more of those. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I can't remember how it happened. It was sort of funny. It was like back in the day when the internet was like, you took it sparingly. It right. wasn't like what you did all day long. Yeah. And like, so I think I put like a post on Facebook that like I'd give somebody a free book if they gave me a one-star review on Amazon. Or no, I, I, I think, I don't know. It was maybe like a reward. It was like, Maybe I gave like a hundred bucks to the best one. Maybe I can't remember. It was a long time yeah, ago. Yeah. But then like HTML Giant posted about it, and right. then like New York Post called me up about it. It was hysterical. I was like, dude, I really hope this isn't the biggest thing I ever do. Like that's what I remember <laughs> thinking. I was, I was like, oh man, this would be lame if this is the peak, bro. <laughs> I I get it though, because it's I'm sure like still stings but it's better than somebody reading the book and being like eh oh dude nothing is more oh twos and threes hurt yeah give me a one all day long ones are my ones so you can learn most from threes and fours i think maybe twos and threes fives are total bs nobody thinks your book's a five right (laughs) nobody's Nobody's going to the tattoo parlor to get a sentence from your goddamn book put on their body. That's not a real review. Five-star review is like they liked it. Maybe they met you one time <laughs> or you know, it used to be Twitter friend. I don't know. I don't know what that is. You know, one-star review is not really a review either because that's just a person with like sadness in their soul. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. why even just quit reading the book? You know, they just set it aside. <laughs> And pretend it didn't happen. What have you actually learned from the from the middling reviews? Like, as in, like, oh, oh yeah. I like this is this is a decent point oh. about this thing or whatever. My next book is going to be one hundred percent realism because I want to see what people think about when I just do one hundred percent realism. Mm. So, because that's one critique that I get, you know, is that like I kind of do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I got to figure out a way to do the realism this next time out. But, um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I'll try different things like that. You know, I mean, I listen to the review. Yeah, I, I, what the, it's free information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like data. You're basically collecting data, you yeah. know? It's that's great. It's I true. mean, I, yeah. hate, I hate social media, but that's good data. You know, if you see a certain grievance a couple different times and you're like, you know what, that maybe makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then adjust if you feel like it makes sense. It's not bending your artistic integrity if it makes sense to you. Right. Like if you hear it and you're like, dude, good point. So I actually like every review that everybody does on my Goodreads. Mm -hmm. Every single one I like. If they do a review, I like it because I'm like, thanks, that's badass. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean it. I'm sincere. I'm legit. Like, 
And then they sent like a nice review. I'll send them a message like, thank you. And they would like maybe want a message from me, if that makes sense, right? Nobody who gets a one-star review mm-hmm. wants a damn message from me, right? Right. But like, so if they give me like a four or five or something, I might be like, hey, thanks for the review, you know? Um, just because I really do feel like it's, you know, you gather information from those for sure. Right. And I guess it's really not all that different. I mean, except for the variable of like who, who it is, but you know, from when you send stuff out to readers, it's like, oh, okay, I keep getting the same comments. So that's something yeah. to look closely at. Or if you just take time away from your own work and go back to it, sometimes you'll see things too. I mean, there's stuff in every book that I've done that I'm like, you know what, dude, if I just tweaked this one little thing, it would have been better. Have you ever seen that? It was like a meme, I think, about how um, Harry Potter could have been better if at the end of it he was immortal and he couldn't die so he could never see his parents again. No. So, like, his name in the book series is The Boy Who Lived, right? Right. And in the narrative of the entire book, it's only Voldemort or Harry Potter can be alive. Uh So the whole premise was it would be better if one of them has to die, but the other one has to live forever, right? Because then if Harry Potter kills Voldemort, he vanquishes his enemy. He gets revenge, right, for his parents. Mm -hmm. But he also never gets to see his parents again in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit more of a devil's bargain. I was always like, dude, they should just change it. It'd be an easy edit. Like, that's such an easy edit. And I don't know if J.K. Rowling thinks that way about her book, right? Because, like, let's face it. If any book has had a successful narrative arc or premise or whatever, it's that book, right? Mm-hmm. Like, she clearly did everything that everybody likes. That's a very successful book. But I wonder if she ever saw that was like, damn, that is good. You know, like, I'm, I'm kind of curious. That's really funny. Yeah. And I mean, she is such an active Twitter personality. I would kind of yeah. not be that surprised if she, like, had ever chimed in on that. Had to have seen it. Had to have seen it. It was a pretty popular meme for a minute, I think. Or maybe it was like a BuzzFeed story. Uh-huh. I don't know. It was cool. I remember the whole thing. I think I showed it to all my students when I was teaching college, and that's why it's so, like, you know, lodged into my brain. Well, and it's also a really good instructive tool that, like, no matter how successful it is or how popular it is, there's still going to be ways it could have been better or yep. negative reviews. Like, you can spin that a few different ways. Totally. There's no five star anything. Right? Yeah. Like, there's no perfect anything. I think I know the answer, but I would just be curious about this part of your process. Do your drafts change much from like round to round? Yeah. Yeah, there's jumps. My editor at Soho, he's great, man. Mark Doten, he's really, really smart. He has me tweak things for sure. And sometimes it's substantive and more material-esque, right? Like, let's trim this. Mm -hmm. On this book, there wasn't a lot of, like, moving and shifting. There wasn't a lot of, like, let's make this thinner, let's build it up. What there was, though, were questions about plot devices. Mm. And super glad that Mark asked me about it and, and challenged me on it because I originally had a pretty big element of it just slightly different the clues that he gets were Mm -hmm. different Mm -hmm. they're not even really clues anymore they were at a point in time these deep-seated like clues that led him to the resolution of the book right but so it was smaller things but it was stuff i had to really 
think about, mm. you know, like, cause Mark didn't have an answer. He was like, I don't know what we should do exactly. But this element of the book doesn't feel like it's working the way you need it to. And it was like, okay, okay, okay. And then I think I hit that again. Like, so it was a, it was a bunch of moments that had to be just like super fine tuned. So not like massive shifting elements, but just like, the nouns had to be changed, kind of, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. But yeah, I mean, like, my drafts will change. Now, that's, like, post it getting worked with by an editor. Mm-hmm. On my own, before I send to an editor, not a ton. Right. Not a ton of changes. Some things here and there. Pauses. Sometimes, like, I'll wait a little bit. Like, I don't have quite the right route forward. Um, and so I'll not write for two or three days and think about what the next step is supposed to be, but not a lot of wrote it, trashed it, some, and I'm not like afraid to cut at all. So that might be kind of how my drafts change a little bit more is that I take stuff out. Right, right. Yeah. And I think what you just said too, that's such a tough call to make about your own process about when it's better to just keep your butt in the chair and like keep writing crap until it turns into something better or be like no the solution is to like walk away from this until it feels like good writing again i have found that at least for me if i'm not enjoying typing i should not be typing Mm. (laughs) if i'm not like oh man i want to get to this next thing i want to see how he thinks about this thing or i want to see what this thing is then i need to like bounce back and be like, okay, I'll come back in a bit. If mm-hmm. I'm starting to be like, what should they do next? Or like, right, whatever. Uh, that's when I need to like back away. Again, I think that's one of the blessings of liking some writers who sort of wrote off stock plots is that like, I'll do that, you know, a little bit. I will rely on sort of narrative structures that I've seen work and other things because to me, art exists more at the sentence level in some ways. And to me, most stories kind of have these sort of tropes. So if I'm not excited to see how voice will be applied to the scene, then I have to kind of get up and walk away. I like that. I'm going to lead that into the question that I like to ask at the end of our conversations, because I feel like it's a really natural segue, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you? For me, it's when you don't care how something is received. Like if you write something or if you put something out, if it's received gloriously or if it's received ingloriously or if it's completely and totally ignored, I don't care I like having done it. And that doesn't always happen with every project for me. And then sometimes it does. Right? (laughs) I've noticed that like my first book, Short Bus, I really cared what people thought about it. Second book, Vampire Conditions, I I didn't care. (laughs) I was like, whatever. I don't care. (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. Because it was a super micro press book. And it just felt great. The second way it felt great. Like I didn't even care. If nobody ever read it, I didn't care. I don't know. And then I've had books that like I've struggled to get out and then I worried about. Like I wrote this book called Mother Effing Sharks, we call it on the podcast. <laughs> and uh, I really wanted people to like that one for some reason. I don't even know why. People liked it enough. It was cool. But them liking it did not help me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it didn't make me feel cool. And then the book after that, it was called Last Horror Novel in the History of the World. I legitimately could have cared less what anybody thought about it. And I had a great experience with it. Like, so I don't know. It's weird, man. I think sometimes creative satisfaction comes and sometimes it doesn't. There's stuff that I write now, like short stuff. If I send it out and it gets rejected two or three times, I'm like, whatever, that's fine. I enjoyed writing it. I don't Mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. 
Like, maybe I'll look back at it at some point, but, man, whatever. I like when I get to that place on projects. To me, it's like when writing's even worth it at all. I like that. Awesome. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. The best way to support WMFA is to share it. If you enjoyed today's episode, tell a friend or write an iTunes review to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier. Or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Irissa Apentaku. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.